Please hear this reading from Isaiah. All you who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come, buy food and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why spend your money for what is not bread, your wages for what fails to satisfy? Heed me, and you will eat well. You will delight in rich fare. Bend your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may have life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you in fulfillment of the blessings promised to David. See, I have made of you to be a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the nations. See, you will summon nations you never knew and nations that never knew you will come hurrying to you for the sake of Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, who will glorify you. Seek me, Yahweh, while I may still be found. Call upon me while I am near. Let the corrupt abandon their ways, the evil, their thoughts. Let them return to Yahweh, and I will have mercy on them. Return to God, for I will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says Yahweh. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. This is one of our sacred texts. Thanks be to God. The prophet bursts into the meeting place, barely able to contain his excitement. Every eye looked up to see the source of the commotion. And the prophet panted something before dropping his hands to his knees and just holding up a finger. The service had just ended, so the people in the meeting place had all been standing and putting on their cloaks to leave. As the prophet caught his breath, the people stood still, waiting to hear what was so important. After a moment, he took a deep breath, and he tried again. It's time, he said definitively, still panting a little. We're going home. The people of the kingdoms of Judah, the kingdom of Judah had been away from home for a long, long time. In the centuries before their departure, the glory of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah had been dimming significantly. As it stood, they had become mere pawns on the great chessboard of emperors and kings. And it only took a couple of miscalculated moves, a foolish overestimate of their own capabilities, and their remaining pieces were captured. Their homeland was decimated. Their culture all but destroyed. The survivors were deported to serve the land of their captors, where they were encouraged to let go of the past and embrace their new identity as proud citizens of the empire of Babylon. But the Judeans held on to scraps of hope as impossible as it seemed. For the first time, 
They wrote down a collection of their sacred stories, trying to maintain some semblance of an identity. They tried to instill this hope and this identity within their children, teaching them their stories and songs, but the values and the myths of Babylon were ever-present shadows on their efforts. By the third and fourth generations, little survived of their hope of return. What, after all, would they be returning to? Babylon may have been a prison, but it was the only kind of safety this generation had ever known. And so they settled into their new home. They woke up, they went to work, they came home, they ate, they slept, they did it all over again. Over and over. On the seventh day, they would meet together at the synagogue, but it was more a matter of habit. Something they did, something to mark the weeks. But unexpectedly, the game changed. A new player stepped in, and in 539 BCE, Cyrus the Great of Persia knocked the board off balance, and Babylon fell. There was a new emperor, and after half a century, Judah was finally free to go home, if they wanted to. This was the news the prophet was so enthused to share, but standing there panting, he was dumbfounded by their lack of response. The people just stared and blinked. We can go home, he proclaimed again a little more slowly. Cyrus the Great just gave the order. Jerusalem is ours again. He threw out his hands as if expecting applause. But there was more silence. That's not our home, someone finally said. A man in the crowd who knew the prophet what? The prophet asked, his arms drooping. I said, the man repeated with dull patience, Jerusalem is not our home. It was our grandparents' home. Setting down his cloak, he addressed his friend, knowing his words would disappoint him. Look, we all knew this was coming. We knew when Cyrus took over that things were going to change, but my family's staying here. Our lives are here. Our money is here. Our property is here. We know this place. It's comfortable. This, he gestured around the room, Babylon is our home now. Others nodded in agreement. And the prophet felt the wind leave his sails as he looked at all the concurrent faces. But he tried to begin again. Jerusalem is, it's a wasted pile of rubble. That's what it is, someone else jumped in. Someone with less patience for the prophet's nostalgic quirks. They gathered their family up. Home is where I'm going right now. Come on. And as the people filed out on either side of him, for what may have been the first time, the prophet just didn't have the words. After a moment, he stood alone in the empty, stale room, with its few scrolls and fading symbols. He stood in this place people returned to again and again out of habit, with no new life in any of their songs or prayers, no real concept of what it meant to live as a child of God. He'd assumed for so long that when this moment came, when they could finally go home, the people would be flooded with the Spirit, that they'd jump at the chance to be something again. But it was like they'd lost the capacity. 
He felt as though he'd come bearing an invitation to a great feast. But no one wanted to put on their sandals to leave the house. So, he thought darkly, I guess this is Israel now. The next day, the prophet meandered through the marketplace, still struggling to wrap his mind around the people's reaction or lack of reaction the day before. He went back and forth between anger and disappointment. Initial reports from his friends around the city revealed that his small community wasn't the only one unmoved by Cyrus's imperial proclamation. He looked around the courtyard. Seeing his people passionately barter and haggle for merchandise, for food and goods. How could they get so much more worked up over a loaf of bread than the work of God? And in that moment, watching his friends and family in the midst of the vendors calling out from every direction, he felt the spark of an idea. And in a moment, his heart had caught fire. Not entirely sure what he was doing, he found an unoccupied pile of rocks and leapt on top of it. All you who are thirsty, get your water here, he advertised in a tone that matched the others trying to sell goods. Even you, yes, you who have no money, come and buy food to eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. His friends and family turned. First they wanted to see who was offering free goods. But when they saw who it was, they hurried over to keep him from making a fool of them in front of their native Babylonian friends. What are you doing? His friend from the meeting place hissed as he approached. Have you lost your mind? I'm just offering my wares, the prophet responded in his mock salesman voice. You have no wares to offer, his friend insisted angrily. Why are you making us look like fools? Because you are acting like fools the prophet said pointedly, locking eyes with his friend and stepping down from his pedestal. There was a moment of shocked silence as he surveyed the people gathered around. Look at you all, the prophet said, gesturing around the group, recently purchased items in their hands. You're spending your money on that which you do not need. This bread you're buying, it won't satisfy your hunger. The water, the shelter, everything you're spending money on, investing yourselves in, it's, it's an illusion. It's the illusion of satisfaction, of safety, but it won't last. One of the younger ones among them, confused, pushed back gently. I don't understand. We do need bread. We need bread to survive. And the prophet turned to see who spoke. And he recognized her as his friend's daughter. And he tenderly looked in her face. To survive, the prophet repeated gently. My child, yes, you need food, and you need water, and you need shelter. But has it not occurred to you there's something you need even more? He looked around to the rest of the group. The older ones he felt should know better. What you all crave cannot be satisfied with mere food. Your discomfort, it'll never be eased by mere houses or wealth. But listen to me and you will eat well. Hear me because I am offering you rich fare, actual bread. I'm offering you a home. Is that what this is about? His friend said angrily. 
I told you before, I have more of a connection to that pile of rocks you were standing on to the, than to the pile of rocks that waits for us in Jerusalem. If you think going back there is going to fill some kind of existential hole, then this isn't about rocks, and this isn't about land, the prophet shot back. It's about purpose. This is about a reason for being. It's about remembering the covenants that brought us into existence in the first place. This is about the food of meaning, the drink of reminding ourselves who we are, who we have been, and who we're supposed to be. He looked around again to the rest of the group. God's promises are not a bell that has rung in distant history, a bell that's still ringing. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear the companioning presence calling us to be something more? What does it say? A voice asked in all sincerity. Pardon me? said the prophet, turning to see the young one who had addressed him before. The voice, she said eagerly. What's it saying? And the prophet smiled. It says, he paused as though he were trying to hear it. It says, see, I have made you a witness to the people. Embodying my spirit before all the nations. Nations you've never even heard of are going to flock to you when they recognize my spirit among you. The prophet stepped back up on his pile of rocks, addressing the whole crowd. This is God's invitation. Seek me while I may still be found. Call upon me while I am near. Let the corrupt abandon their ways. Let the evil abandon their thoughts and let them return to me because no matter what, I am waiting for you with open arms. He paused to look his friend square in the eyes. I'm waiting for you to come home. Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist. And he's most well known for his assertion that humanity has a hierarchy of needs. In other words, we have to have things like food and water and shelter before we could be concerned with much else. But one story, however, says that after an encounter with Viktor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, and survivor of the Holocaust, Maslow changed his mind. Frankl's experiences in the concentration camp a place in which very few of his basic needs were met, had given Frankel the confidence that it's not about having what you need to live, but asking yourself, what am I living for? That is the only food that could ever satisfy. Finding it and eating of it it's like the feeling of coming out of exile after a very long stay in the desert. It's the feeling of coming back home. So, Northminster, may we too have ears tuned towards the voices that call us again and again to come back home.